0: Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I am a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. And this episode is really important. I am taping this episode as the entire world is focused on lung cancer. The entire oncology world is focused on lung cancer and is going to attend World Lung Conference in Vienna, Austria. So I wanted to have an episode on clinical advances in lung cancer, what's happening in the world of thoracic oncology. And to do so, I've invited Dr. Jarushka Naidu. She is the lead thoracic oncologist uh, focusing on immunotherapy, immunotherapy toxicity at the Beaumont Cancer Center in Dublin. She's also an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University. And Dr. Stephen Liu, who's the director of thoracic oncology and development therapeutics at the Lombardy Cancer Center, associate professor at Georgetown University. It is really, I thought this is really an important thing to discuss advances of what's happening in lung cancer. And I share this with you because when I first started doing medicine, there was nothing happening in lung cancer, let me tell you. It was basically you were having to convince primary care physicians to send the metastatic lung cancer patients to the oncologist to undergo chemotherapy because there was a sense that chemotherapy is more fatal and toxic than even palliative care. So much has changed in the field of thoracic oncology and no one is better than Drs. Stephen Liu and Jarushka Naidu to discuss with you all the advances in this field. Before I air the episode, I would like to urge you to uh, subscribe to the show, rate the show, write a brief review, refer your friends and colleagues to the show. You can watch all of these episodes on my YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. You should let me know how I'm doing by direct messaging me on Twitter and visiting my website, www.shadinabhan.com Without further ado, Dr. Stephen Liu and Jarushka Naidu with all things lung cancer. Hey, folks. Well, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm very delighted that you're going to be listening to this podcast episode around the time of world lung, where everybody is talking about lung cancer and the advance in lung cancer. And to discuss all of these, uh, I'm very delighted to have Dr. Jarushka Naidu and Dr. Stephen Liu uh, with me on today's podcast. And as you could see, the most amazing thing about this podcast is not the advances in lung cancer, it's the fact that we're both wearing the healthcare unfiltered T-shirts, which is really how it works. Exactly right. So we're going to start with the introductions and we're going to really dig deep into lung cancer. There's so many advances in the disease. I always joke that when I first started my residency, this gives away my age, literally there was, I would say probably over 80% of stage four metastatic lung cancer were going to hospice care. And the classic board question that we would be getting is actually, uh, they would trick you and tell you, you have to treat the patient, but the answer should be palliative care. And then things changed and, and here we are today. All right, so um, Jarushka, uh, Dr. Naidu, a little bit about you and where you are, and where you practice.
1: Sure. Uh, So my name is Jerushka Naidu. I'm a thoracic medical oncologist. I have a bit of a colorful background. So I'm uh, South African, uh, but I did all of my training um, in, in Dublin, in Ireland. And then I finished off my training with a fellowship at Sloan Kettering and then was an attending at at Hopkins for about five or six years, um, where I did a lot of investigator initiated trials in immunotherapy um, and developed an interest in immune related toxicity. And just in the last year and a half, I've come back to be um, the uh, chair of the thoracic oncology division at one of our um, comprehensive campuses cancer centers here in Dublin and Ireland called the Beaumont RCSI cancer centers, and uh, still actively working um, with uh, colleagues and collaborators in the US and and now in Europe as well. So great to be here, thank you for having me.
0: Jarushka, you, uh, I am, I, I'd like to have you at some point in the future for a different podcast to contrast medical oncology practice between Europe and the US. I'm very intrigued by this and I don't believe there are a lot of people who spent enough time in the US to really have a firm decision. It's a different podcast, I'll reach out separately and discuss that at a future episode. Uh, Stephen,
2: a little bit about you. Yeah, uh, Stephen Liu, um, I'm a medical oncologist, also a thoracic oncologist. And so my uh, background is I did my medical training at the University of Pennsylvania, my fellowship at USC in Los Angeles, and I've been at Georgetown for just about 10 years. I'm director of thoracic oncology here, I also head the developmental therapeutics group here. Uh, Pisces, obviously, uh, Capricorn Rising. And um, uh, yeah, happy to be here. I do a lot of work with translational clinical investigations, uh, a lot of work with genomics, and uh, excited to to be here with the both of you.
0: Thank you, Stephen. And, and maybe you may want to just raise your volume slightly, just in case. Uh, uh, um, okay. So look, this is your show, frankly. Uh, I, you are the experts. There's a lot of things going on. And I thought, I, I, I always believe that sometimes there's not always one answer that fits all. But as we think with lung cancer, maybe you just had the, the ASCO meeting in 2022, and we're also heading into World Lung, and there are lots of things that happen in between. Anything that listeners should be aware of in the screening stage adjuvant stage, which is when patients receive therapy after resection, or neoadjuvant stage when they receive therapy before resection or before definitive treatment. Um, Jarushka, we'll start with you. Is there anything in that space we should focus more on metastatic disease?
1: Yeah, I think... um... You know, thankfully, we've seen advances across the whole gamut of lung cancer, which is really um, heartening to see. Um, in terms of early stage lung cancer, maybe focusing on that a little bit. Obviously, the big splash of the year so far, um, uh, although I'm totally biased having having worked at Hopkins, is the Checkmate eight hundred and sixteen study, Patrick Ford study, phase three study of neoadjuvant nevo and chemotherapy, um, which demonstrated an improvement in pathologic complete response and event-free survival, um, and really is sort of defining a new paradigm in how we treat early stage lung cancer, almost following uh, a breast cancer model and introducing some of these earlier endpoints. So in at, at ASCO this year, we saw another Trial in the setting a phase two randomized trial called the Nadine two study, which was presented by um, our colleagues from Spain, Dr. Mariano Provencio. Um, and and in this study, really it's it's almost completing the the story of we had an original neo-adjuvant nevo study again from Patrick Ford in the New England, then our checkmate eight one six, and now this is a, another study looking specifically at the stage three population, and this time giving you know. Um, in a randomized fashion, neoadjuvant nevo chemo versus nevo alone. What was a bit different about this was there was six months of nevo after surgery, which was a little bit different from Checkmate 816, um, but again, some impressive benefit in this uh, endpoint of pathologic complete response um, and really sort of um, peaking. Our interest in, in in this approach to early stage lung cancer and a beautiful uh, discussion of, of this by a uh, thoracic surgeon, Dr. Jessica Donnington. Steve, your thoughts on on that study?
2: I think that this is definitely where the interest is in the neoadjuvant setting. And it's a nice window of opportunity because we give chemoimmunotherapy and you can immediately see the results. And, cat scans, they show us something's there, but we don't really know what's here. Uh, whether it's tumor, whether it's some sort of inflammatory reaction, but in the surgical setting, the neoadjuvant setting, when we remove a tumor, um, we can really see what's left. And I think we've been pleasantly surprised that a lot of times we see things on a CAT scan that end up not being tumor. And it really makes us rethink sort of what we're looking at on these radiographic studies. The neoadjuvant studies show that with neoadjuvant nivolumab and you know platinum double chemotherapy, three cycles and checkmate 816, we saw you know, almost one in four patients with no viable tumor remaining, a pathologic complete response. And you know, that, I think that, that's quite striking. The Nadeem study, as you mentioned, is a little different. Um, I think the Spanish Lung Group has done a wonderful job. The numbers are, seem a little high, right? The pathologic CR rates seem a little too good. I don't want to um, uh, suggest that there, there's anything faulty with the results, but I think that um, there there were a little high in the DEAM, which is a single arm study. The DEAM 2, those numbers came down quite a bit, still higher than what we saw in Checkmate 816, maybe a little more realistic, but sort of more fuel to the fire that adding immunotherapy in the perioperative setting really seems to to increase the rate of pathologic response. And we know from other studies that that does track very well with event-free survival. Um, There are gonna be a lot of studies coming out in this space over the next year. and they're gonna be a little different. The feature of Nadeem too that was different was that adjuvant immunotherapy, and we really need to see what that adds to outcomes. As these other trials read out though, Jerushka, I don't know that we're really gonna get an answer to that because we're not comparing more immunotherapy versus less. Um, it really is a, a cross-trial comparison, different populations separated in time and space, and um, I think that we're gonna to continue to refine this. While I'm excited by these data, well, I I like the idea of seeing what the effect is pathologically. I think the science behind neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy is very strong. I'm not convinced that we're going to see major changes in practice across the country, because at least in the U.S., I think the neoadjuvant pr- approach doesn't really fit in with our current standard patient workflow. Do you know what I mean? That's really
1: interesting because I think that's going to be quite different in Europe. I have thoracic surgeons knocking on my door saying who should we give neoadjuvant chemo IO to? What is the pathway? When do we think this is going to be approved? So I I, I do wonder, I think potentially in in, in a European context, another, or, or maybe in general, another potential benefit of this approach, particularly when we're thinking of 816, is that it's three doses of neoadjuvant chemo IO and then you're done um like that is quite a change you know to the paradigm of treatment of maybe giving a year of adjuvant immunotherapy
0: so uh, for the for these patients for folks who may not be familiar with the trial were these um stage two and above or were they i presume stage one were not getting the neoadjuvant maybe i'm wrong
1: yeah so so it, there was 1B to 3A in the Checkmate 816 study. Um, in this newer study, which was presented at ASCO, the Nadine 2 study, this was stage 3 patients only. So uh, that is a bit of a refinement.
0: Before we move on to next one, Stephen, do you feel that the field of thoracic oncology is ready to adopt a pathologic response as a proper surrogate endpoint? that um, you know, when you design a clinical trial that you're comfortable to change clinical practice with, or do you think still overall survival needs to be established?
2: I, I think that we are ready. Um, when we first saw the initial PATH-CR data, it was very unclear because we needed some clinical endpoint. In the perioperative setting, survival is our gold standard. We don't have survival data yet, but what we see pretty clearly is that event-free survival tracks very well with pathologic CR rates. And when we saw the data at ACR. Those who achieve path CR, the event-free survival rate at two years was 90 to 100% in the two arms. It seemed like regardless of how you got up there, if you got a pathologic CR, you did quite well. Now, we do want to see overall survival data, but I think the event-free survival really sort of makes sense to us, and, and I think we are ready to adopt that.
0: Jerushka, before we move on to the next one, my last question on this abstract or this data. Did... Um... All, were they all comers or did they have to look at the PDL1? That they have to be high expressors, high staining? What's going on there?
1: So, in both studies, there was no requirement for PDL1 expression in, in this setting. Patients with EGFR, uh, mutant lung cancer, alcohol alterations were excluded. But um, what we did see in both the studies was that higher PDL1 expression. Was associated with improved response rate. So intuitively, what we would have expected to see
0: will be interesting to see if your prediction would be uh, correct in terms of difference how these are. I I I tend to believe um, that patients after surgery maybe they might tolerate chemotherapy. Uh, you know less than uh, before surgery but who
2: knows you're you're totally right about that i think in every solid tumor it's easier to deliver therapy beforehand but when i think of of the us right now um, and it's not that we don't believe in these data and if this were the only perioperative immunotherapy option we would figure out a way to make it work but remember this is happening in a world where we have approval and even longer follow up with adjuvant immunotherapy and in the pdl1 high subgroup with a quite powerful DFS hazard ratio of 0.43. The the numbers look quite good there as well. And so it's not that it's neoadjuvant QMIO or nothing. It's neoadjuvant versus adjuvant. They're both using immunotherapy and we're not comparing them directly. When I think of the US, most lung cancer surgeries are not done in an academic hospital. Most are not done by a dedicated thoracic surgeon. Most are done by a community cardiothoracic surgeon. And these cardiothoracic surgeons are in, in demand and they're very busy. And the decisions... about perioperative therapy, these are discussions we have in a multidisciplinary tumor board. And unfortunately, I think right now, most patients that undergo lung cancer surgery are not discussed at a multi-D tumor board. Now that can change, it will change over time. But today, I think the workflow is that patient is identified with a lung mass, referred to maybe a pulmonologist or a radiologist for the biopsy, and then referred to a surgeon. And the patients that get referred to a medical oncologist to have those discussions are certainly more likely to receive perioperative therapy but the patient who has no interest in that, the patient who says, this is a lung cancer, I want you to take it out tomorrow, that person never gets referred and they go right to surgery. And we see them after the diagnosis where we discuss adjuvant. And I think that it'll take a little while to sort of change that workflow.
0: While you're at it, let's move to the next one.
2: Well, I think that um, outside of the the perioperative space, we certainly saw a lot of advances, a lot of new data in the targeted space. Uh, When we think of targeted therapy, EGFR, ALK, ROS, BRAF, these are drugs, uh, targets where we have FDA approved drugs. But the most common mutation in advanced lung cancer is KRAS. And for decades, we've been told that this is simply not a druggable target, that no targeted therapies would work there. It was used more as negative selective therapy uh, where we found a KRAS mutation, we wouldn't think of any targeted therapy. That changed recently with the Cobrake 100 data showing that sotorasib or AMG510 is an effective agent response rate about 37% leading to its accelerated approval by the FDA. At ASCO 2022, we are now starting to see some data for another selective KRAS G12C inhibitor and that's adagrasib. And adagrasib was studied in the CRYSTAL1 study in patients with KRAS G12C, non-small cell lung cancer, who had had prior chemotherapy and prior immunotherapy. And when these data were presented in a simultaneous publication in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, you know I, I think the data were received differently. Some people really felt it was really very similar, almost identical to sodorrasive interchangeable, whereas others really saw some differences between the two. And uh, you know, Jerushka, I wonder wh- where you landed on that. Is this just another brand, another uh, uh, version of this same G c inhibitor or are there meaningful differences between these two drugs?
1: Yeah, so I think with the excitement of being able to drug KRAS G12C at all, I think it's always welcome to have more than one agent that we're um, we're assessing in clinical studies and also obviously in terms of um, patient access to some of these newer agents. Having said that, I think um, there are certain aspects of the CRYSTAL1 study that uh, didn't look as positive as I had hoped. So I think the toxicity data clearly at aggressive is is more toxic if we we look at the toxicity data compared to sotaracib. Now, there is a newer formulation of this medication. Right now, it's being given in capsule form, and this is being um, revisited to be given in in tablet form, which apparently will will help with some of the GI side effects. The main side effects, GI side effects occurring, uh, including diarrhea, nausea vomiting um sort of 60 to 70 percent incidence of all grade toxicity but thankfully high grade toxicity relatively low but still this is sort of um substantially more than we saw in in some of the sotaracib studies having said that um some data that's included In uh, in CRYSTAL1, not just in the presentation by Alex Spire of CRYSTAL1, but also a separate presentation focused specifically on intracranial activity, I think was um, something of note. So we do know that Keras mutant non-small cell lung cancer has a predilection for the brain and that brain metastases are a critical um, component of this disease that can lead to morbidity and even mortality. And we see here and intracranial response rates in, in around the 30% mark. Now, again, it's not a slam dunk in terms of intracranial activity that we're, we're perhaps used to seeing from targeted therapies for other oncogene-addicted lung cancers, but perhaps I'm a little bit more sanguine about this. It is KRAS mutant lung cancer. I don't think we should only call it successful if it's a you know, in alk rearranged lung cancer, I think it's still an incremental step forward, and perhaps for this subset of oncogene-addicted lung cancers, we're just going to need to be a bit more creative and it's going to be combinations for this group. What do you think, Stephen?
2: So um, I, I agree with the points that you've made, but just to provide a, a little balance. When I think of the tox, while the numbers do make it seem like it's aggressive is a more toxic medicine in terms of, of the rates. I'm not convinced that it's going to be all that different. When we look at toxicity requiring discontinuation of drugs, side effects that really say we can't continue this, it was identical in the two studies, right? Seven percent in both arms. And um, you know, we're not quite sure we've settled on the right doses of either of these drugs, frankly. I'm not, not convinced of that. One thing that I think could be skewing the toxicity is the setting where this has been studied. And Keras is different from EGFR and ALK in a lot of important ways. I think we're, we're still teasing that out. Um, certainly the outcomes are, are, are a little lower. The response rates are lower overall. But an important fundamental difference is that KRAS-G12C is almost always a smoking-related mutation, right? Just sort of the, the biochemistry of it. This mutation occurs really from the exposure to aromatic hydrocarbons. This is a tobacco-related mutation. And as a result, a lot of these patients will respond to immunotherapy. Because of that, because we can have long-term survivors with immunotherapy, maybe cures with immunotherapy, we are using immunotherapy first in this group. That's different from HFRNL. As a result, most of the patients, almost all the patients on both of these studies received immunotherapy before they received their targeted agent. Now, the number of patients who got immunotherapy a little higher in crystal. What we don't know from these data is the proximity from starting the TKI to immunotherapy, because if you had immunotherapy first, and then a couple months of chemo, then the TKI, maybe that tox is a little bit easier than if you went right from IO to TKI. We know from EGFR, we know from from ALK, from a lot of data that that you're you're generating, Darushka, that giving targeted therapy in a driver-positive lung cancer after immunotherapy is more toxic. I don't know if we know why, but it's clearly more toxic. My guess is that if you were to give KRAS G12C, Sodoracib, or Adagrasib, frontline, without any immunotherapy, I think the talks would be very, very different.
0: But uh, am I, I mean, just see, listening to your conversation as a non-lung cancer uh, expert, I kind of feel we are going to end up having about 10 of these drugs, like an ALK, and then um, suddenly we moved K R S from a non-targetable, uh, non-druggable uh, target to druggable target. And within a few years, we're going to have so many of these drugs and you're going to, you guys need to figure out a way to guide us how to choose when. Is, is that a fair assessment? And if that's the case, uh, maybe, I don't know, put on your business hat here. Is it, is it that common? Like what's the percent of KRAS, you know, G12C in lung cancer and why are all drug developers running after it?
2: Uh, yes. Yeah, so it's it's way more common, right? So KRAS is like a quarter of lung cancer, and this is like a half of all KRAS mutations. So it's about 13% of all advanced non-small cell lung cancer. So it's a huge group for sure. But I think that when we see these other drugs, there will be things that distinguish them. I think Jerushka brought up CNS. That's a very important one. We don't know if sotorasib has activity there. Um, we've seen some outcomes in patients with brain metastases from the sotorasib studies, but those were treated brain metastases. And I think, I think that's totally different data that we really can't interpret. Um, So I think that adagrasib has more data in that setting. We'll eventually get data with sodiracib there too, uh, but they are different drugs. We know from some preclinical work that there are specific resistance mutations, for example, that confer resistance to one drug like adagrasib, but that would still be sensitive to the other like sodiracib. So maybe there's a role to sequence these. Going forward though, within KRAS mutations, partly because it's smoking related, There are so many more relevant commutations that we are going to need to become more granular. And I I suspect that we'll be able to eventually define a group that really should get TKI first, that won't get that long-term benefit from IO. And a group where we really should be giving IO up front and other groups where we probably need more than just the G12C inhibitor, other combinations, right?
1: Yeah, just to to build on that, exactly what Stephen is saying. um, When I teach the fellows, I usually say KRAS is pie charts within pie charts, that you have this pie chart of KRAS, but then we have to subdivide it further. And now there are these subdivisions with STK11, KEEP1, P53, and having these co-alterations may imply differential response to some of these newer agents. Much of that has yet to be validated. It's very early data, but I do think that that will um, refine which subset is going to receive which treatment and when. Um, so watch this space and certainly a, a lot of work and uh, a, a lot of area to study uh, to keep Stephen and I in business anyway.
0: You're making me want to go back to, to, to do a thoracic oncology fellowship. I'll, I, I definitely need to do that. All right, Jerushka, next.
1: So, so uh, I suppose the other end of the spectrum, and maybe this is controversial, but the, the abstract that I was most excited by and was kind of wondering, well, why isn't this a standard of care now based on this, was a, a combination that was being studied called amivantamab and lazertinib. Um, so this amivantamab is an EGFR-MET- bi-specific antibody, and azotinib is a a specific third-generation EGFR TKI. And this combination was being studied in patients with EGFR mutant lung cancer, which we know happens in about 15 to 20% of Caucasian patients and is more enriched in female Asian never-smokers. So in this population, it's now a standard of care to give an upfront uh, T790M-specific third generation TKI called osimertinib based on the flora data. And so most of those patients as standard will get osimertinib first line and usually platinum doublet chemotherapy second line. So in this uh, presentation at ASCO this year by Kathy Shu, this particular cohort of patients with that sort of um, prior treatments, maybe in a different order in some cases, but those prior treatments received this combination of amivantumab and lazertinib, And overall, a fairly impressive response rate in this uh, population, north of 30%, um, and a median progression-free survival of 9.6 months, and generally a tolerable therapy. So in this group, group, we effectively don't have any targeted options or we're going to sort of standard chemotherapy in the setting. Um, I felt that this was certainly a very um, worthwhile addition to to this sort of treatment armamentarium for this group and something that I think is um, very exciting data. Um, Stephen, did you have any other thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I'm a little less enthusiastic, I guess. so I think the combination is great. This is it's interesting when we look at EGFR, this is really the mutation that set off targeted therapy where we had EGFR inhibitors that were better than chemotherapy. This was light years ahead of anything. And I don't know, in the past couple of years, it's kind of fallen a little behind, right? Where for ALK, we have so many lines of therapy, things work for many, many years. With frontline osimertinib. while that's clearly our standard, on average, a progression-free survival, uh, the effective period of a year and a half, um, it, it doesn't seem good enough anymore. And there's just been this low where we haven't had something to go to afterwards apart from chemo. And, and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to make sense that, it, that, it, that the progress would be so slow. I think the reason the progress is slow is, is that progression after osimertinib is very heterogeneous. There are lots of different paths to resistance. These data that, that Kathy Shu presented, I think were very good. I think the outcomes are very good. But I think they're even better if you look specifically at the groups where we expect this to work. Amivantimab is a bispecific antibody that targets EGFR and MET. And we've seen in previous presentations that if you specifically looked at groups where resistance was mediated by EGFR or MET, meaning MET amplification or overexpression or mutation or EGFR amplification, if if it was something along those targets that was driving it, the outcomes were even better. You're enriching your population. Whereas if you had a RET fusion, this combination is probably not going to work and really isn't a good use of time. So I am not opposed at all to this drug being available. I want it to be available today, for sure. But I think we need to see a little more about the population where this really works so we can properly direct this where where it's going to be effective. I don't think that this really should be an empiric approval um, because I think that its effectiveness is going to be limited to to a definable population. So and Stephen,
0: that... if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're asking for is patients who are failing If you wanna understand their molecular subtype a little bit more because they're not, they're not homogeneous. Am I?
2: Yeah, that's right. I think this will really work even better if, if it was driven by a predictive biomarker. And I think that biomarker is probably pretty easy to do. So I think that's the data that really will, will garner approval, I think. What do you think, Jerushka?
1: Um, I would push back on that a little bit. <laughs> so I think that um, I suppose that was the prevailing wisdom with OC and T790M, and then what we saw was when we gave OC first line, regardless of T790M, there was activity. So even though we know there's a subset of the population that could stand to do better, there was still a benefit in all patients. And I wonder if this is something that we might see with this combination as well. I think the other question here is what's the alternative? Are we are we happy to give docetaxel instead of amivantamab and Osimertinib, or you know, would we necessarily withhold this combination in favor of docetaxel and those who don't have uh, MET alterations? I'm not so sure about that. Um, you know, given the toxicity and 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 you know those other considerations.
0: So may I ask? I mean, so so, but patients who fail osimertinib. This was not a randomized study, right? So so, in all fairness, I'll push back to both of you. <laughs> so in patients who fail osimertinib. I would think you would want to randomize this. I mean, I, I know it's tough, but I mean, effectively you don't know if this works better than chemotherapy. Uh, clearly, we can all agree that chemotherapy is likely going to be more toxic and maybe because this is more targeted, it should work better. But shouldn't the trial design would be failing a randomization to this experimental arm versus chemotherapy, which is the current standard of care? Jarushka first and then Steven.
1: So there are two phase three studies that are examining these, this combination in a randomized fashion, Mariposa um, one and two. So I think some of these are going to be looked at in, in larger, more formal studies. Um, and there are enough patients, I think, to answer these questions. I think the difficulty comes in maybe rarer subsets of, of non-small cell lung cancer where we're I think doing randomized studies will be far trickier. In the EGFR setting, we probably will have phase three data.
2: Yeah, I agree. Stephen, agree. All right, Stephen. Next, another type of EGFR mutation we see is EGFR exon twenty. Um, this is a, a a less common EGFR mutation, but it's still a very relevant one. I think for many years it's been very frustrating. We know that for EGFR sensitizing more common mutations like deletion nineteen and L eight five eight R, we have an oral TKI like osimertinib that's very effective. That works very well. Um, but it doesn't work so well for an EGFR exon 20 insertion. But we also know from our immunotherapy data that immunotherapy doesn't seem to work uh, across the board for EGFR very well. So if we have a cancer with an EGFR exon 20 insertion, we don't really have the benefit of targeted therapy and and we don't really have the benefit of immunotherapy either. And so really the standard has been chemotherapy alone, which seems sort of antiquated. Now, fortunately that changed in the past year or two with the introduction of amivantamab and mobisertinib, both now FDA-approved in previously treated EGFR on 20. But I think there are limitations to both of those drugs, but certainly room for more. And what we saw from Dr. Helena Yu was some data from CLN081. Um, these are a little more mature data. This study is still in escalation, um, uh, but really I think they've settled on a dose of 100 milligrams. And, and what we saw here is that you know, the, the response rates, uh, I think are, are modest, but encouraging. What really caught me was I think the toxicity profile seemed a little more appealing. Um, while I know that there are other drugs in this space, I you know took away from the the presentation here that this drug looks very promising to me and and i'm I'm excited to see a little more information about this. What do you think George? um so uh.
1: I thought, I thought the presentation was good. Obviously, it's great to have more agents, again, this sort of rarer subset of EGFR Exxon 20. I suppose I was less impressed by the data in the sense that I'm, I, you know, I, I'm not sure it's necessarily a, a huge step forward in terms of response. But of course, it's it's early in the development of this agent. Um, to harken back to what I said before about intracranial activity and targeted therapy, I think that's where this data was, had something new. So uh, we saw in the previous studies of amivantamab and mobocertinib, that patients with brain metastases weren't included um, or they were treated metastases uh, as Stephen had mentioned in another context. Whereas these data did show um, a small number of patients with brain mets were allowed to partake in the study and there was some you know, uh, data of intracranial response. So I think that is probably the exciting piece of this agent um, perhaps more so than the, the overall response data.
2: I think they're, they're tied together though, right? So I think that the reason we're seeing some CNS efficacy is maybe they've this, this compound is able to parse out wild type and exon 20. And because maybe the, the safety profile could be better, maybe we can push the dose a little higher and maybe that's sort of driving some of those CNS responses. And you know, I think that the, the currently available drugs do have some limitations. Um, I think that if, if we can find a more tolerable less toxic therapy, I think there'll, there'll be space for it. Um, so, so, you know, stay tuned. It's small numbers, it's sort of early, but I think that the, the more favorable toxicity allows us to push the dose higher, and that I think allows more CNS efficacy.
0: Stephen, um, while we're at, before we move to the next one that Jarushka will pick, um, uh, you mentioned earlier that a lot of patients with lung cancer, at least in the US, are seen in community setting. Do you find that, at least based on maybe talking to your colleagues or or, or even maybe seeing these referrals, that the there's a detailed pathology um, uh, sequencing information telling you which exon and 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 so on? Or do you find yourself sometimes when you see these referrals, you don't have complete information. You have to do it your own. How how do you see? the community oncology adopting to these fast advances, specifically on these exon 20, exon 19, you know what I mean?
2: I think that uh, our colleagues that are, that are treating multiple different cancers have the disadvantage of, of needing to stay up to date on very rapidly advancing fields across the board. And, you know, when you have the luxury of just focusing on one cancer, I think it's a bit easier to swallow. It is an impossible task, I think, to keep up to date with everything. And genomics moves so quickly, you know, Charlie, you know this better than anyone, when, when, when we were training, we weren't really taught a lot of molecular pathology. We weren't really taught a lot of these details. This happened while we were already in practice. And so for an oncologist who's been in practice for 10 or 20 years, you're asking them to learn a whole new field of medicine that they really had no exposure to and to learn it very quickly. It's not just memorizing the medicines. The granularity um, with, with with all the newer genomic alterations that we're responsible for is really only going to increase, and it's not enough to know if an EGFR mutation is there or not. You have to know specifically which EGFR mutation it is, and you have to be able to sort of learn this new language, because it doesn't just say, you know, uh, common EGFR mutation. It it might say EGFR, duplication, a bunch of letters and numbers, and, you know, how do you figure out what that means? So I think that uh, a lot of our busier oncologists are doing the best they can. They're doing a very good job there's a lot of room for improvement. And I think we need to find ways to make these data a little more accessible, a little more translatable um, because these tiny details really matter. And we really can give, we can give the wrong medicine if we misinterpret these results. Yeah, Jarushka,
0: next.
1: Yeah, so a- another study and another sort of even rarer subset again um, that was highlighted at the ASCO meeting was um, targeted therapy for met exon 14 skipping. So this is another of the... Oh, genomic-
0: you, you lost me there. What's what, what, what skipping? What? what?
1: <laughs> so it, this alteration has lots of different names, actually. <laughs> so um, it was actually originally called met exon 14 splice site variation, Um, And then now it's called mate exon 14 skipping. So there's lots of different terms, um, but it was sort of first described um, several years ago, work by Paul Pack, Christine Lovely and others. Um, And thankfully, we actually have several targeted therapies that are available for this subset. So it constitutes about two to 3% of um, non-small cell lung cancers. What's a bit unique, and maybe we'll discuss it a bit, is that this, this alteration can also happen in squamous, non-small cell lung cancers, not just adenocarcinomas. Uh, but in, at ASCO this year, the, uh, the EGFR met bispecific antibody we mentioned earlier for the EGFR mutation called amivantamab was examined in this subset. Um, of patients, presentation by Matthew Krebs from the Christie in Manchester. And uh, this study examined again a, a heavily pretreated population and demonstrated a response rate in and around 33%. Um, I think uh, for me, uh, again, nice to see another agent in, in a space, but when we look at uh, the response rate of this agent compared to some other agents which are approved, capmatinib, um, the response rates are, are, are a little bit better for those agents. So potentially something that we can sequence, but I don't think is going to be um, sort of a new improved version of what we already have. Um, Stephen, your thoughts on that?
2: You know, I, I think there might be something to this, and I think this might be by, might be an important study. Um, when I think of the MedX14 agents we have, we have good drugs that are approved that I use first line. We have two, capmatinib and tepotinib, and I think they're pretty similar. While the studies are a little different, um, looking at the sample sizes and how they were done, I think those drugs are, are more similar than different. Now, while these, I think, are my preferred first line option, um, we're not talking about three-year PFS with these. We're going talking talk about 90% response rates. I think these are sort of early generation drugs. And I think we have a lot of work to do. But my challenge with these agents is the toxicity. And while I think they're overall tolerable, more tolerable than chemotherapy, for me, the main tox problem over time is edema. Uh, now, we've been taught for years that this is a class effect, that when you block MET, you're going to cause this peripheral edema that sometimes is, is really limits mobility, sort of very large... extremities where you can't put on shoes where you can't walk really limiting bad toxicity and you you try diuretics i don't think they work um you you can move fluid around with compression stockings but ultimately to drop the fluid you drop the dose and as you continue dropping the dose it limits intensity and i think that sort of explains some of the uh, limited long-term efficacy results so to me the problem with met inhibition is that edema and if you could take that out if you could have less edema uh, I think you could really sort of improve long-term outcomes. What was interesting for me about amavantamab is that the rates of edema were a lot less, um, you know, 1% grade three, 25% overall. So there's still C edema, but a lot less. Now, I guess it sort of depends on how you look at it. Does seeing less edema mean that you're just engaging MET less well, um, or is this one way to target MET without as much edema? It's hard to answer because I don't think we know why that edema happens. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think when you look at the toxicity profile of the amivantamab, it's clear that there are EGFR-related toxicities, the rash, diarrhea, paronychia, and then MET-mediated, and then maybe this construct is demonstrating activity against both those targets and um, maybe less so on the MET side. Yeah, I think something to watch, but I I guess I just wasn't bowled over by the data. I think in addition, but... um, you know, happy
2: to watch this space. <laughs> well, a nice. I think a nice learning point from this is when we first saw this cohort at World Lung from Dr. Alexander Spira, um, the response rate was was way higher, like sixty four percent. The disease control rate was like a hundred percent, and I think that um, what what this little sort of uh, a cohort shows is that. We need to wait sometimes to see a little more evidence, and as, as time goes on, numbers sometimes come down to earth a little more. There's a lot of selection bias with these uh, single-arm, multi-cohort studies, and the, the data here were much more realistic than, I think, the initial data that were presented, um, which were probably just a little too, too good
0: why so I always—that's uh, why I'm very intrigued by real-world evidence, by the way, and I—I I, I like to doing doing some real-world evidence studies. Uh, I will have some additional questions in general once you're done with your top clinical abstracts. But uh, uh, next, if you have anything next, and then we'll go some general questions.
2: Well, maybe we can just talk about one more. And you know, for disclosure, I was one of the authors on this abstract. But we saw the Skyscraper 2 study. Um, this was a frontline small. Well, it's going
0: to be terrible. Already, we know you're a co-author on this, Jarushka. You have to just. This is your opportunity, okay? Let's hear it.
2: Well, I can, I can hedge you off in the past. The study was a completely negative trial, right? <laughs> so this was a frontline small cell study that built on our current standard of carboplatin, etoposide, and tezolizumab, and they're randomized to tiragolamab or placebo, followed by a tezotira or a placebo maintenance therapy. And... Now, the study was a little different than the original Empower-133 trial that had allowed patients with untreated brain metastases. Um, and so that was a, a slight difference overall on the trial. And when we look at the study, the addition of teragolumab simply did not improve outcomes. There was no improvement in progression-free survival and no hint of improvement in overall survival. And while it's the interim survival analysis, the, the study won't change. Those outcomes won't change. The study will be negative. The addition of teragolumab really uh, uh, an experiment that didn't pan out. There was no improvement in outcome here. And this what is, is just... that
0: drug? T- tell us a little bit about tiragolumab, the, the drug, please.
2: Yeah, tiragolumab is an anti tigit antibody, and this really got a lot of attention based on the Cityscape 2 study. This was a, a randomized phase 2 trial in non-small cell lung cancer where patients received first-line atezolizumab on label um, for PD-L1 high, at least, uh, and were randomized to receive a tezo alone or a tezo with tiragolimab. The addition of tiragolimab in non-small cell, at least in that pdl one high group, significantly improved progression-free survival and overall survival. Um, really impressive numbers, and that spurned a bunch of randomized phase three trials with tiragolimab, as well as many tiragol- tig- anti-TIGIT studies from other companies. And so there are multiple phase three trials here. This was the first to read out and, and it was negative. Now it was based on mostly preclinical evidence that PVR, which is the ligand for TIGIT, is highly expressed on small cell. But I think a discussion point here is that there was not really small cell clinical data for this, that there was not a randomized phase two. And I think some people wondered if, if we really should be going to large phase three trials um, uh, based on, on sort of earlier lines of evidence.
0: Sharushka, is this the dead, uh, the death of this class of agents? What are your thoughts?
1: So, um, unfortunately, I think it might be. (laughs) Um, So, we were all very excited about TIGIT. Um, There was a lot of, I think, I see parallels between this and and LAG3 and and other um, immune checkpoint molecules that we thought were were looking very exciting. But then, you know, um, when we took it to later phase studies, um, we didn't see a difference. I think, you know, small cell and Stephen obviously is the expert in this area, you know, uh, this is why there was so much excitement about atezolizumab. That was the first, you know, advance we had seen in extensive stage small cell lung cancer in over 30 years. And yes, some may argue that the magnitude of the benefit was not great. um, And that it doesn't move the needle appreciably compared to platinum doublet chemotherapy. But I think this is a good example of reminding us that to move the needle in small cell is a huge step forward. And uh, unfortunately, but the dust here and didn't show a- any benefit. Now, whether we're necessarily going to see similar things in non-small cell lung cancer, I think, you know, we'll wait for the data, but, um, based on some of the data that we've seen so far, I would be concerned that this uh, is not looking promising for this agent. And certainly the presenter uh, in the session was likewise puzzled by um, by how packed the audience was uh, for negative data. Um, so, you know, shows that we're excited about immunotherapy, but unfortunately the reality um, in, in this circumstance.
2: Yeah, I think that... Um... You know, the different diseases small cells are a very different disease from non-small cells so I would still you know want to see the non-small cell data. Um, you know those studies have finished accrual we'll, we'll see those data soon enough. so I don't know if it's the it makes the target less valid, but certainly it's not valid in, in small cell. I think we learned a couple things from the study. you know the study did allow patients with untreated brain mets and we saw you know very favorable outcomes uh, relative to the original mm-hmm. empower133 trial which allows us to extrapolate those data. To patients with untreated brain meds. I think it validates the approach because the outcomes were, were very similar. And now we know that TIGIT is just not a, the right molecule to, to study in small cell. But I, I don't know if we could have known that any other way. You know, if we had sort of gone back in time and said, you know what, let's go a little slower and let's do a single arm phase two study. I don't know if you learn anything from single arm phase two studies in small cell because um, especially in the frontline setting, the response rates are so high. Uh, that you can't really use response as a good surrogate for survival. Um, Same with progression-free survival. I think that really what changes things is, is overall survival. If you did a single arm phase two study, looking at PFS just for a signal of efficacy, you would see whatever you wanted to see, right? You're talking about a 40, 50 patient study. It would perform very well. And you'd say, we should do a phase three or it might underperform and you would find reasons why it underperformed, right? You would say, well, here's why we see this, we see this, we look at the demographics, performance status, a little worse, um, uh, You know these other baseline characteristics, and you would probably still find some way to do a phase three because you wouldn't throw away the drug just based on single arm phase two. So you could do a randomized phase two, um, but a randomized phase two powered to what? To, to response rate or PFS. Again, those aren't great surrogates for OS. So if you're going to power randomized phase two for overall survival, I got to tell you, it's not that different from doing a phase three um, in yeah. terms of... So I, I don't know if, if you could have gotten this answer a different way. I wanted the study to be positive. Obviously, it's not. And I think it just allows us to move on. If we had done a randomized phase two with sort of on-the-fence trends, then we would have had to do a phase three and it would have just right. taken like, cost right. more multiple patients. Anything
0: in the small cell lung cancer space, as an outside observer, I see so many advances in non-small cell lung cancer. And to your point, Jerushka, earlier... The first thing in three decades was the atezolizumab. Anything on the horizon that is exciting you both about specifically small cell lung cancer, which is the more fatal form of uh, lung cancer?
1: Yeah, so I think um, one study which uh, we've heard completely accrued very recently in the last couple of weeks is a cooperative group study from the NRG, Alu005, in which a atezolizumab is being used after definitive chemoradiation for limited stage small cell lung cancer. So potentially bringing immunotherapy into the limited stage setting again, you know, an area that hasn't seen any progress in, in several decades. So um, this study, you know, led by Chris Kristen Higgins, a radiation oncologist at Emory, um, accrued way faster than anybody thought it would, particularly for quite a rare subset of small cell lung cancers. Um, So kudos to all of the investigators who were involved in that. And I think that is probably the most exciting area in small cell for me, waiting for the results of that study.
2: Do you share that, Stephen? Oh, absolutely. And especially since this was done during the pandemic, basically. It was very impressive. They did a wonderful job. There's another study in extensive stage through the cooperative groups called NRG LU007, led by Dr. Quinn Wynn at MD Anderson. This is looking at consolidative thoracic radiation um, in the context of chemoimmunotherapy. Um, that's still accruing. So I'd certainly encourage anyone that can to refer patients to that study. I think that small cells are very sensitive to radiation. So I'm optimistic about these two trials, but we have new drugs coming out. We have NAL-ERI, which sort of deserves a look. We have uh, Tarlatamab, or um, AMG, uh, the bispecific, um, I'm sorry, bispecific T-cell engager molecule that's really bringing together DLL3 and CD3. That's still an escalation, but it's showing some very durable responses, some interesting patterns. So I think that's going to be an exciting one. And then small cell, but you know, if we were just giving electinib and osimertinib to all comers in non-small cell, they wouldn't work that well. And that's really what we're doing in in small cell is we're using these empiric strategies when we know that there are subsets that are more likely to respond. So I think until we catch up with the biomarker work, the gains are going to be incremental. Um, And so a lot of the important work done by Charlie Rudin and Lauren Byers and Chaparna Sen really splicing out what these different subtypes are in small cell and how they respond differently. That's where we'll see sort of the big progress. And we're not quite there yet, but I think we're closer than people think.
0: So, uh, and... Uh, I know that, uh, you know, we've got probably about, uh, you know, 10 minutes uh, because of uh, we have, you both have uh, some hard stuff, but so I want to maybe get a couple of general questions or two or three questions. So think of it as lighting rounds. Are we done with histology in non-small cell lung cancer? Uh, I hear you talk and you're talking about the, you know, the biomarkers. Do we care anymore about adenocarcinoma, squamous carcinoma, Jerushka?
1: we do unfortunately i think for for non squamous non small cell lung cancer all these genomic biomarkers have definitely come to the fore and certainly i know in my tumor boards if if I hear squam, my heart sinks. <laughs> um, so that that's just telling me that we have more to go in, in the squamous population. And uh, we had brought up a little bit before about Metexon 14 being present in squamous. I think that's kind of an active area to think about, well, are we going to move to a space where we do um, next generation sequencing for squamous as well? It would be great to see uh, the genomic landscape coming to the fore in, in squamous, for example, Stephen, what do you do? Do you, do you specifically look for med exon-14 in squames or what, what are you doing for that?
2: Uh, so I sequence everyone that comes in the door with lung cancer, regardless of stage or histology, uh, because you can see med exon-14, you can rarely see other alterations as well. We know that you know, even KRS-G12C can occur in squames and um, you don't find anything unless you go looking for it. So I definitely do. I, I think that histology does play a role, certainly when we think about chemotherapy, when we think about prognosis, when we think about patterns of spread in biology. But to sort of get to the heart of your question, Shadi, I, I don't think it's long for this world. I do think that histology and appearance under a microscope, that phenotype, I, I, think, that, um, I think that that is a surrogate for other markers that are more relevant. And if we think of said doesn't work as well in squames, I don't think it's because it looks the way it does. I think that it's because squamous cancers have higher expression of thymidylate synthase. And if we could quantify that more accurately, I think there are probably some squames that respond well to pemetrexate. So I think the histology is a surrogate for the, the underlying biology. And I think as we get more sophisticated, eventually that would go away. If we're still relying on appearance 20 years from now, I'd be disappointed.
0: Uh, next in lighting rounds. So I heard about the Pacific trial in stage three disease where you, 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 you treat chemo radiotherapy followed by maintenance treatment. Any advances in stage three A disease? Is that what it is? What are you doing in that, in that stage three locally advanced disease, Jerushka?
1: So um, I was very pleased to present a poster at ASCO, actually, um, a subset analysis of the PACIFIC trial uh, on a question that I think is relevant. Um, Now, I'm not sure that the the data that we have actually answers the question might just uh, lead to confirmation bias of what people were already doing. But um, it it aimed to identify whether uh, patients with EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer in the stage 3 setting may benefit from DERVA or not, and essentially, there did not appear to be a difference. Um, The patients with EGFR mutant lung cancer did appear to have some benefit or certainly weren't harmed by it. There wasn't an excess sort of toxicity signal from the DERVA, but similarly not an overwhelming benefit for giving it either. So um, it was interesting and people who came by, I think it just confirmed what they were already doing. Um, In stage three, I think the question really is resectability. You know, is this population resectable or not? Should we um, adopt a neoadjuvant chemo IO approach? Or is uh, this tumor truly unresectable? And should we go down a pacific approach? And I think that'll be an ongoing discussion in multiple tumor boards. Stephen, your thoughts?
2: I mean, Pacific is clearly the standard. We have five-year survival data. It is undeniable that we are curing more people by giving DERV after chemo radiation, and that's been a huge advance. What we're going to see, though, is some people that probably should be treated with Pacific um, to instead be routed down a neoadjuvant chemo-IO route. Um, the neoadjuvant chemo-IO approach really is for resectable lung cancer, and that's resectable at cycle one, day one. Where I think it could be used is people that are borderline resectable, that are not quite resectable, and that's not what the data are. That's a very hard study to do, and I don't think that's the proper use of those agents, Um, but it it is what's gonna happen, I I predict. Um, And so that's where I think we need to to be very clear about where are we providing benefit and where are we maybe missing out on benefit.
0: And sometimes borderline resectability in the eyes of the beholder. Third lighting around questions, CNS metastasis from lung cancer. It's a huge issue, morbidity, mortality, in small cell lung, you know, you know obviously they're on prophylactic and so on. Do you, do you prophylax now uh, with the prophylactic train radiation in all small cell lung cancer, even extended stage? What do you do with non-small cell lung cancer? If you don't do either, what's happening in brain metastasis? Anything that's exciting you there?
2: So I have not done prophylactic cranial radiation about five years. I talk about it with every patient. We discuss it together. And I think it's a shared decision because they're conflicting data, but it's not something that I've recommended for at least five years. And when we look at the early data, we know that for small cell, um, that you know the brain is a reservoir site, that you can have patients that do very well um, in the body, in the lungs, in, in Uh, extracranial sites, and then they relapse within the brain. And what we saw was that delivery of prophylactic cranial irradiation related to the entire brain, reduces the risk of future brain metastases, and was associated with a modest, but statistically significant improvement in survival. And um, these were based on two fairly large meta-analyses, but they're very old studies. Um, These studies are are decades old, based on a a world that really didn't use MRI to stage. those studies were replicated, at least in the extensive stage setting, the same study, except in this case, everyone got an MRI. So we knew they truly did not have brain meds at the start and they were randomized to prophylactic cranial radiation or MRI surveillance, watching with MRI, knowing that now we can probably salvage a lot of brain metastases if, if they're detected sort of early and maybe catch up. And what we saw in, in this era where you're using MRI is that you know prophylactic cranial radiation clearly reduces the risk of brain metastases. It, it definitely does that to the same degree but it did not improve survival. Survival was numerically longer in those that didn't get it. Um, In addition, PCI is not without cost. And the main cost we see is late neurologic toxicity. Um, In extensive stage, when there was no survival benefit, that changed my practice immediately. And while it is being replicated in that cooperative groups in the US, and we'll wait to see those data, um, and I'll have that discussion with patients, it's not something I recommend here because I'm not convinced there's an OS benefit. In limited stage, I would use PCI on my board exams, they're probably not in practice um, because really while the, the data haven't been generated limited stage, I don't think they're going to be any different from what we saw in extensive stage. And when I think of patients limited stage that have truly been cured from radiation um, and prophylactic cranial irradiation, a lot of them have late crippling side effects um, in terms of dementia and cognitive problems attributed to the radiation. So for, for me, I think the cost is quite high. Um, and it's a decision that I would not make for the patient. It's a decision I make with the patient, but my own practice has really carved out PCI for small cells.
0: Jerushka, I see you nodding. It seems like you agree with everything Stephen said.
1: Yeah, I don't get PCI for extensive stage at all. Um, the, you know, the newer data demonstrating that MRI surveillance is equivalent change practice for me. In limited stage, it's far more of a discussion, I think. But as Stephen said, the data is old and the cognitive impairment, I think, is significant. So, um, And then to, to extend on that, your question was, does this apply to non-small cell lung cancer as well? And there have been several studies examining the potential role of PCI and non-small cell lung cancer. And as far as I'm aware, none of them have demonstrated a benefit, so really not a standard thus far. And I think in oncogene-addicted lung cancers now, certain subsets in which we see intracranial t- activity, you know, the, the debate is actually in patients with brain mets, do we need to even do any kind of radiation? Does the targeted therapy do all the work? So really an evolving space.
0: Look, uh, I know uh, you're in Ireland. We're probably, what time is it right now? It's, uh, you're, you're being very generous. It's four o'clock and Stephen, I know you have a hard stop. You, you warned me before, so I want to be very respectful of that. But before I let you go, any final thoughts, anything that you want to just say to listeners or anything I should have asked you that I may have missed, Stephen and then Jerushka.
2: Well, for me, I mean, when we talk about all of these results and they're so different, there's so many new drugs, you only get there if you understand the molecular makeup of the drug. And you know, the diagnosis of lung cancer, of adenocarcinoma of the lung, that is just the first step, and we are well past the point where that is enough. And so if, if someone's diagnosed with lung cancer, you know that's not enough to make any treatment decision. You really need full molecular profiling um, uh, to make any type of, of proper treatment decisions.
0: And that is a discussion. One day I'm going to have you and Jack West, because I see you on Twitter always arguing what's the extent of the molecular profiling that you will do. So, you know, Jarushka, I'm all about the clicks and the fights on the podcast. That's what I try to do. Final thoughts from your standpoint?
1: Um, Well, I suppose my my final thoughts might be to the younger or trainee oncologists who are listening uh, in that Thoracic oncology, as you said, used to be a sort of a, a subset of oncology that was not seen as maybe something where a lot was going on or a dynamic group. I think nothing could be further from the truth. Um, I think this is a, a very um, dynamic, exciting area to go into, With uh, really has something for everyone in terms of immunotherapy, molecular testing, disparities, um, and, and it has a, a lot to give and a lot more work to be done. So for those who are interested in a career in oncology, I think thoracic oncology is where it's at.
0: I definitely would do fellowship. Uh, Dr. Stephen Liu and uh, and Charushka Naidu, thank you so much for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered, and we will see you in Vienna.
2: Great, great to see you.
0: everyone. Thank you so much for joining me. This was such an exciting episode. I loved how my guests were just feeding off each other and talking about some of the controversies. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed taping it. It was really wonderful to discuss this. I learned a lot from listening and from having uh, my guests. I Obviously, not a specialist in lung cancer, but I already feel I know so much after this episode. So, you know, being the host, I'm a little bit selfish. I like to learn a little bit more, so I invite guests that can teach me, and hopefully in the process, they teach all of us as well. Please let me know how I'm doing. Refer your friends, colleagues, subscribe to the show, and let me know. Provide some feedback by direct messaging me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or by visiting my website at www.shadinabhan.com. I love to hear your thoughts. And don't forget, by the way, to ask for the amazing Healthcare Unfiltered T-shirt. If you are a loyal listener, if you have listened to these episodes, please post them on Twitter and direct message me on Twitter so I could send you one of the Healthcare Unfiltered T-shirts. Before I let you go, I would like to leave you with one of the sayings from a Lebanese poet, Khalil Gibran, he once said, out of suffering have emerged the strongest souls. The most massive characters are seared with scars. Until next time, take care.